What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. That's what it's good for. Nada. And we're seeing that. We're seeing it. They want it. They want war. But it's a different kind of war that they want. And the thing is, will the people give it to them? Now, uh, I'm sorry for the late start. I um, had a late appointment. I then had to get dropped off. And of course it's snowing and nobody knows how to drive when it snows. And it's as if all of them don't know how to drive, I guess. I can't speak to that. Although I can say for the first time in a very long time, I sat in the backseat of a car um, and was not a backseat driver. So I wasn't directing all the time and demanding, okay? Uh, hey, watch this, watch that. I actually closed my eyes and sat back and enjoyed the ride. And during that time, I sat there thinking. I, you know, I was thinking because it was something someone had just texted me. And I was like, you know, you know maybe I misunderstood, Right. I know people are, eh, no, no, no. Look, I don't get angry. Well, I kind of do, but that's the petty side. But I don't get upset so much because someone steals something from me, like an idea or a story or information or repurposes it. Well, I think the thing that really upsets me and it kind of came to me was that I'm actually upset that none of them have their own. It's sad to think that <laughs> so many people exist and they don't even have any novel perspectives or information when they're supposedly in the know, most of them. I mean, that's what they tell you. And, and, and that comes from the fact of thinking Clearly. So today I had to go to a few doctor appointments and I went to a hospital because I had to get a test done last minute. The place was empty. The minute I walk in, there's a lady. She, man, she asked me, do you need a mask? It's like, no, thank you. I don't need one. She's like, do you have one of your own? And I kind of ignored her like I didn't hear her because I was you know, at least 18 feet away from this chick who was enclosed in, you know, plexiglass. And um, she again says, you need to put on a mask, it's a policy. I was like, does yours work? I mean, do you need mine from this distance? It's a policy. She gets up all frustrated, goes to the back, and this wannabe cop, mall cop, comes out. Like he's going to intimidate me. <laughs> it's like, seriously, lady, that's what you got. And so he comes out and I'm just not paying attention to any of them. I'm waiting my turn to go to the desk and be like, look, I got this appointment. Let's get going. 
She's like, you need to take this and fill it out. She totally ignored me and just gave it to me. And I, I could not sit down and fill it out. So I stood there to the side. So then the cop comes over and he slides a mask. He's like, you need to put it on. And I said, why? Why do I need to put it on? Because then they won't treat you. So am I being turned away because I refuse to wear a mask? We're following CDC guidelines. Did I elect the CDC? Are they actually smart? Are they doing the right thing? Who are they to tell me what I'm supposed to do? And he kind of just looked at me and I kept filling out the paper. He goes, listen, uh, you know, it's private property, so we can demand you put it on anything you want. So if you want your test, you can put it on. And I said, listen, I'm going to be very, very difficult with you because I have the right to protest. And so you're going to give me that right to protest and call them stupid because I said so. And then I'll comply and put it on. I did. I put it on as a chin mask, of course. And every time they nodded to me to put it up, I was pulling shit out of my pocket, paper, literal paper, and said, I'm eating. And I would take little bits of a receipt that I had and I would put it in my mouth just not to wear it. The police officer obviously knew that I was not going to be intimidated. So he kind of just was like, well, she did take the mask and kind of just sat there. Um, it, was a, it was a busy day. But you know what I also thought? I'm a scientist just like most of these people. And I look at their lobby and they have all these chairs separated like plex- with plexiglass. As if that's going to fucking save you. Because viruses don't go around things or over things. They only go right next to you. They only know one direction. And it's like, you know, scientists today, they think of things in a deep manner with feelings, but they do not think clearly. In order to think clearly about things, and clearly means to be objective, to be able to see the whole picture, you have to be sane, right? You have to be sane. But someone who can think so deep like rabbit hole can be quite insane, right? It's all a fixation that they have. It's literally a fixation. I thought to myself, damn, I am in a room right now with a few masked people. I felt like if I could convert their hate, their fuming madness You know, I mean, this 90 year old lady that had like this tip of blue frosted tips. I was like, I'm not saying she shouldn't do it. It just looked really awkward. She just looked really mean. And I thought all of them seemed really angry, angry that I didn't want to wear my mask. And when I sat down in the plexiglass on the side where there were no people, it was completely empty. You know. They were giving me the stank eye and I thought, damn, if I can convert all that hate into like money, I'd be super rich. Or if I could convert it into power, I'd be lighting up the whole world with light bulbs everywhere. They'd be lit up like a Christmas tree. It's so, it's so hard to explain to people that if they actually wanted to find the secret of everything, all they had to do is think of themselves in a sense of energy and vibration. I break it down again on an atomic level. That's clearly what you are. Just this light, a light. And you know, 
these people are such busybodies with what other people are doing and they contemplate what's going on outside, you know, in the, in the front yard or who's not paying attention to the rules and who's doing things that they're completely oblivious to the type of people and what passes through them. It's so sad to see, but you know, the one thing I can tell you is for those that are in power like you, because the people are in power, you must understand that your power lies in your ability to control your emotions. I'm not really good at that sometimes. But I don't mean on exerting your emotions, but people tapping your emotions. Because once someone has command over your inner peace and your inner world, they are now your master. They own you. It's kind of like the term that they use, rent free in your head, right? Now, going back to the lawsuits, that I have pending, the one of um, with Dominion and Media Matters and, and, and the lawsuit for the state of North Dakota. One thing I have to tell you is that at all times, and I should be a very prime example of that, people should be always bothered by what other people say, not in the sense of like someone says, oh, she's this. I mean, usually people that talk shit about me, it's because they want clicks, money, or they want to write a book. Okay. But protecting your your, your reputation is imperative because when your, when your reputation is strong and powerful, people will seldomly challenge you. But when it's weak, Everyone can take you down. Now, depends on what kind of reputation, because if you're relentless and you don't kneel when they attack you, well, then you've just rebuffed it. But it's important to understand that in order to win things, you don't wait for a fire to rage on the other end. You don't wait for them to do something and be reactive. You see those embers? fucking stomp them out before they become a blaze. Because if you don't do that, you're going to have a lot to command and a lot to do. And it's really, really, really hard. Now, in, in, in everything that we do going forward, it is important to not make decisions when, our, when we're clouded and, and confused with emotion. You have to wait for that moment that you have that clear mind and then act. I don't remember who. It was very recent. They were with me when I received some news that were quite startling to me. Something that, um, something that was concerning to me. And it came as a shock. Like it hit me really hard. And at that point, you know, that's when I am silent. See, when I get smacked in the face with something that I don't expect, I don't respond when the threat that I conceive is big. Like, it'll be someone talking smack. It could be this. It could be that. It could be, you know, police lights in the back, you know, testifying, whatever it is. That doesn't faze me. But when something completely blindsides me, that's when I stitch it up and I am, I look almost numb because I'm shocked, but that's when I process things. So that's how I feel that I wait for that, you know, that 
that clearing. In order to do that, I got to keep silent and focus. I got to not respond to the anger. You know, r- r- you know, circle my wagons in my mind, find the solution, and then I respond with my anger. Then I show how livid I am. It's a tactic that I've used many times, and you know, this is war, and therefore people should be mindful of that. See, the one thing that we've seen the leaders in this nation do is lie. But they've been very adaptable as they lie. But now that the way they rule is with a fist that's rigid. Well, anything that's rigid, when picked at piece by piece, will be turned to dust. That's the way it is. That is science. That is science. It's not a statement. That is complete science. Now, for us, the people, the strategy of separating the people and putting them into boxes, black, white, pink, yellow, Hispanic, non-Hispanic, English-speaking, non-English-speaking, deaf, not deaf, mute, not mute, vaccinated, not vaccinated, masked, not masked, right? It's in order to make you as a whole vulnerable. In order to be strong and unwavering, you must have strong ties and alliances with those that are around you. Because if you build a wall and collect yourself with just your friends, that wall, that pushing back away from the lefties, the vaxies, the, 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 quickly turn into a prison for you. So it's important that we are adaptable in our approaches always. Always. So today we're going to talk about war. But before we do, we need to listen to this professor. This is from 10 years ago. 10 years ago. And listen to what he says as to why politicians lie about international politics. It's quite fascinating, I might say. Military corporations, oil companies and whatnot, and perhaps also uh, uh, even another category of uh, the greater good, whatever a president might interpret that as. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, elaborate on that and perhaps uh, enlarge the dichotomy to uh, accommodate these other possibilities. Yeah, I I would categorize those sorts of lies that you described as selfish lies, where the leader obviously acting in cahoots, say, with the oil company, uh, the oil companies or some element of the military industrial complex told a lie for their benefit. And that would obviously be to his or her benefit as well. So that'd be a selfish lie. Now, do we ever have a greater good uh, consideration uh, well, well, above great, and beyond strategic relations between nations? No, in, in my lexicon, a strategic lie is done for the greater good. Again, I believe that the Bush administration and the Johnson administration lied about uh, the uh, Iraq 
lied, lied in the run-up to the Vietnam and Iraq wars because they thought they were doing it for the greater good. They thought it was in the national interest. I guess I was thinking supranational, supranationally in terms of the United Nations. Or, oh, for the hey, go- oh, supranationally. <laughs> Supernationally. Oh, I see what you're saying. Just trying to enlarge your categories. Yes, that's all. Yes, I, you want. No, that's a very interesting question. I never thought about that. Uh, I never thought about it. By the way, just before I take this gentleman's question, I gave a talk uh, in Denmark last week on this, and a person got up and made what I thought was a very interesting point that I had not thought about. I told him I wish he had told me this before I wrote the book. I would have incorporated his idea. He said, as a citizen... Uh, he understood that leaders sometimes had to lie to the public. But he said that as far as he was concerned, it was only acceptable for his leaders to lie to him when the issue at stake was national survival, right? When there was an existential threat. So he could accept that the lie that John F. Kennedy told uh, in um, 1962. But a lot of the other lies that are told don't involve matters of survival. They don't deal with existential threats. And he said in those cases, he did not think it was acceptable for a leader to lie to his or her public, in large part because of the blowback effects, the fact that it poisoned uh, the social culture. Uh, so first of all, I'd just like to thank you for your time. Um, so thank you. You're welcome. Um, also, um, I just sort of like to extend uh, the first question that was asked um, regarding investigative journalism. Um, I just uh, just recently, um, you're aware of the WikiLeaks, uh, I guess, phenomenon that has uh, been occurring the past couple yes. months. Um, Obviously, they're undermining some of the lies that uh, that nations have told, um, whether they be strategic or selfish lies. Um, so I was just wondering if how you regarded um, that sort of investigative journalism, if you selectively supported it or if you were against it. Okay. Uh, with regard to WikiLeaks, it's not an example of investigative journalism. Uh, there was this man, Bradley Manning, who was a soldier in the army who gave all of this data uh, to Julian Assange, and he then made it available to a handful of newspapers. Uh, and the newspapers have published uh, those documents, but this is not investigative journalism. As I said, the mainstream media doesn't do much investigative journalism anymore. The American media is basic. The American mainstream media is basically toothless. You young people in the audience can't appreciate it because you don't remember when the American mainstream media actually had some bite. Uh, But I can assure you it's toothless now and presidents manipulate it with great ease. Uh, With regard to WikiLeaks, Uh, I think that what you see, if you look at the documents that have been released so far, is number one, there's not much evidence of lying. There is some for sure. And much of the lying is leaders lying to their own public, not lying to each other. 
And the best example of this is the head of Yemen, uh, who was in cahoots with the Americans, in particular with General Petraeus, to allow us to use the American Air Force to strike at al-Qaeda targets in Yemen. But the president of Yemen said, you can do that to General Petraeus, but you have to understand that I have to tell my people that it is the Yemeni's Air Force that's doing the attacking, not the American Air Force, because it would get me into an immense amount of trouble on the home front, right? And I am very interested. He, he had a vested interest in dealing with al-Qaeda, right? So he had a good strategic reason for wanting to deal with al-Qaeda. He couldn't do it himself. He was willing to let the Americans do it, but he had to be able to tell his people that it was not uh, the Americans. It was his military, their military that was doing it. This is a strategic cover-up, by the way. Uh, the president of Yemen's cover was blown by the WikiLeaks documents. And one of the reasons that he's in so much trouble today and in danger of going overboard, being thrown overboard, is because of WikiLeaks. So WikiLeaks has had a big influence. Thank you. I also want to thank you. I've enjoyed the lecture very much. Um, uh, I just got satellite radio, and, and um, I, I find the BBC uh, a lot sharper by far than, than the domestic um, uh, questioners. I don't know if, if that's your experience also. Um, my thought about how politicians talk to each other is, is like you have Lyndon Johnson and you have Everett Dirksen and Lyndon Johnson says, I really need a couple of uh, Republican votes on this. And Everett Dirksen saying something like, you know, we, we need a couple of uh, judges confirmed here. And Johnson saying, oh, these are very good men. And, and Dirksen saying, well, yeah, that legislation, you know, we could do something about that. And no deal has ever been made, you know, officially. They, they can go out and, and tell everybody that no deal was made, but obviously a deal was made. Um, uh, and they have, they have cover to say that. They're just kind of, and I'm just wondering, in the conversation between Khrushchev and Kennedy, um, you portrayed it, and, and I don't know if you have um, documents or whatever, as, as being very direct. I'm going to lie. I'm going to say this, uh, whereas Kennedy might have put it as, you know, I, I can't make a deal about these missiles, but but I've never been interested in, in having them there anyway, and I'm interested in peace, and then turning around and, and telling the vice president, you know, if, if somebody, if you called them and, and said, uh, we're going to pull these missiles out, I certainly wouldn't contradict you. And then he could turn around and truthfully say no actual deal was made, but obviously a deal was. So I guess I'm, I'm trying to say, um, when do, do, do does, does a, a more of a straight lying go on and, and, and when does more of a kind of an obfuscation type situation take place? Is, is it a international versus domestic or? No, I, I think that I would call obfuscation spinning. Okay. And, and, and you're talking about the trade-off between lying and spinning. I believe that if a leader can deal with an issue by spinning, 
and that leader does not have to tell a lie, the leader will spin every time. I don't think I've come across any leaders with the possible exception of Hitler who enjoys telling lies. Uh, it's not something that, uh, that people relish. The point that I'm trying to make is that leaders tell these lies because they think it's important for the national security of their country. They think they're doing it for the welfare of all of us. They don't have lies. to lie if they can do Lies for the welfare of all of us. But he said, unlike Hitler, who enjoyed lying, the others don't. And one thing uh, that people should remember is how many lies have you been told? The one thing that you've been told is we're going to war and the war is over. We're going to war. War is over. No, it's not. Here's how you can see that the Nazi propaganda that was useful for Hitler's reign is being applied within the United States just with a different type of collar, right? And this was actually put up by Reason TV, which made me cock my head a bit. I was like, what? Check this out. Hi, I'm Michael Moynihan for Reason TV. And, and today, today we are at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum with Steve Luckert, the curator of State of Deception, the Power of Nazi Propaganda. We wanted to examine the role of, of Nazi propaganda, how they used it to facilitate persecution, mass murder, and war. When you think about how quick that Nazi rise to power was, but for most of the, the period of the Weimar Republic, the Nazi party was largely a joke. Nineteen twenty-eight, the Nazi party only had 12 seats in the German parliament out of almost 600. But 1930 gets 107 seats. Then 1932, it more than doubles that. They learn how to simplify a message, how to play upon voters' emotions, how to reduce very complicated issues to slogans. This is a Braille copy of Mein Kampf. A Braille copy of Mein Kampf. Contemporaneously. Were people reading this? Yeah, particularly those that were uh, the propagandists. This was kind of the Bible for them, that they would draw on what was said in there. And, of course, excerpts from Mein Kampf were used everywhere to justify various policies. But the, uh, this became a, a bestseller, and Hitler made uh, a fortune off the royalties uh, from this. And it was published in, uh, I think, 16, 17 different languages. These posters inform us a great deal about Nazi thinking and the ways in which they presented uh, images to the public, whether it's of this kind of strong, heroic figure breaking the chains of, of slavery, this playing upon dissatisfaction with the status quo, the ways in which they engaged in what today we would call niche marketing. So it's women who work in the home, farmers, Workers don't tend to associate the Nazis with the word freedom, but they used it endlessly. What was the sort of methodology but behind choosing these bright red colors? Hitler talked about how in the early 20s he would create posters for his meetings in red because he understood the way it could provoke people.
that it was it was a way to engage an audience to get them into those beer halls. So are they consciously drawing from, from the Bolshevik example? I mean, when Goebbels talked about the power of film, one of the films that he always cited was Battleship Potemkin. What's happening now after 1933, 1934? The Nazis saw the importance of controlling the media, this Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. It was created as a cabinet-level post for Joseph Goebbels, who also was in charge of the Nazi Party's propaganda apparatus. So in the state, this means newsreels, films, books, uh, radio, libraries. libraries. Here we have the the great, the big political show of, of uh, National Socialists, mm-hmm. the two attacks on Jews right. as both being capitalists and communists exactly. and Bolsheviks, exactly. uh, confused um, and, and silly, but, but, but apparently effective. So how does one prepare the, the population for this kind of machinery of destruction? There is an effort made to both present the Jews as a real physical threat to Germany, and also to identify Jews as being the powers behind the enemy. They would show these Soviet atrocities against the local population, and then identify the Jews as the perpetrators of that. In this particular poster, dealing with uh, the discovery of a Soviet crime in Vinitsa, to identify Jewish Bolshevik as the perpetrator of that crime. Is this the... Original painting? Yes. It is? Yeah. Now, the title comes from the New Testament book of John. But instead of having Jesus as a messianic figure, we have Adolf Hitler. And you can see in the painting the way the light emanates off Adolf Hitler's face over the audience. The audience is portrayed as a kind of a microcosm of German society. But it also emphasizes the importance that Hitler and the Nazis placed on the spoken word. That Adolf Hitler believed that the spoken word, far more than the written word, was responsible for all the great events in history. It allowed you direct contact with your audience. That is, you could play upon their hopes, fears, and frustrations. You could get immediate feedback about what worked and what didn't work. And all that became important as you tailored your message. How do you see this as relevant to today? I mean, what does this tell us about today's political propaganda, if anything? An exhibition like this raises questions about how we address propaganda. Is it through restricting speech, or is it more of the American marketplace of ideas that is the best way to address what one might consider offensive speech? And also, how to evaluate all the information that we're bombarded with today, and how to make educated, informed decisions? Offensive. They tell you that you shouldn't speak because you offend them. Okay. If I'm speaking to just one person, I can be careful not to offend them. Maybe I won't make a snarky comment about them being vegan. (laughs) Or I won't say something about their hair. Or I won't say something else that might offend them. Right? When I'm speaking with three people, I can be conscious of what I say, right? And not speak my truth as to I might offend them. In essence, 
we're being told that we must be careful as to what we say to each other so we don't offend others. If we keep editing our thoughts and our speech, then we really have nothing to say. Who decides what is offensive for the masses? Who decides what is a lie and what is truth? Who decides what is good and what is bad? Ah, the ministry of truth, of course. See, while we're all distracted with Ukraine, distracted, I say it again, distracted, things are happening within our nation, and no one is paying attention. In Maryland, a bill is coming out that could make it almost legal to kill a baby up to one month in age if you decide you do not want it. Pure infanticide. We have your rights being silently taken away. We have omnibus bills. We have bills within our local states. They're redistricting. They're calling the shots. They're making the rules. The DNC and GOP have closed the doors to their own people. Yet, Ukraine, right? They're creating foundations and organizations to silence your speech. To silence you. Because you should not speak. To silence you. Because what you say is offensive or not appropriate that they've decided. How does one win a war where there are no rules? How does one win a battle of conversation when you don't even know the guidelines? How do you fix that? Oh, we should just talk about Ukraine, of course. Because, you know, over 11 years ago, that was also a thing, guess where? On The Simpsons. What? Yes, it was. Pure distraction. Uh, junk, junk. Beyonce confirms she will play at my daughter's Sweet 16 party. Humorous YouTube sent by my brother. Mildly funny at best. Eh, sometimes they are good for giggle. Auto-tune disaster victim. Hiding in the basement. Hiding in the basement. And I'm like, where's the cat? Where's, where's the cat? Hmm. Crazy man attacks boss. <sighs> it's him. American agent who caused the death of everyone I loved. You want to give it zero stars? No. We will go to Springfield, America and kill this man. But first... Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Oh, you're an angel now. Washing out the dog poo. Your beats picking it up. Flanders driveway is my goal. I am looking for a man named Wayne. Oh, he's gone. I don't know where he went. Are you friend of his? He has no friends. Except me! I see you're tight like Borston beats. Tell me, if we kidnapped a friend of Wayne's, would he attempt to rescue that friend? Well, 
I suppose if the friend was being horribly tortured. Hey, hey, what? 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 No! Not the middle seat! I am being held somewhere in the Springfield area. Turn the card. Hold up today's newspaper. What will you guys use when there are... Stick those... This just in. A local man has been kidnapped by Ukrainian gangsters. We've received the following video. Yes to America! Stick to script. Fine. I am being held somewhere in the Springfield area. Turn the card. Hold up today's newspaper. What will you guys use when there aren't newspapers anymore? Perhaps we'll be living in a world where there'll be no need to kidnap. Oh, well, way to make me feel obsolete. Oh, look, here's a coupon for scissors that you have to cut out. Think, geniuses. Shut up. Hey, hey, hey what are you doing? Ow! 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 This is no way to treat the talent! Shut up! Oh, God. I know that voice. Victor? Darling. I told you to stay in your room. I told you the bedspread smells funny. Ukraine. Part of the Ukraine. Part of the Simpsons. Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. And as you see, they spelled it U-K-R-E-I-G-N. Mayor promises to lie less. Hmm? Well, let's talk about war today. We're going to go through the whole war spiel. We're going to start with small wars, wars that, you know, you didn't know about, wars you think you didn't know about. There's a lot of people that think that the war in Afghanistan started um, a certain time. Let me dispel that for you. Let me show you when it really started. I come to you this evening to discuss the extremely important and rapidly changing circumstances in Southwest Asia. I continue to share with all of you the sense of outrage and impatience because of the kidnapping of innocent American hostages and the holding of them by militant terrorists with the support and the approval of Iranian officials. Our purposes continue to be the protection of the long-range interest of our nation and the safety of the American hostages. We are attempting to secure the release of the Americans through the International Court of Justice, through the United Nations, and through public and private diplomatic efforts. We are determined to achieve this goal. We hope to do so without bloodshed and without any further danger to the lives of our 50 fellow Americans. In these efforts, we continue to have the strong support of the world community. The unity and the common sense of the American people under such trying circumstances are essential to the success of our efforts. Recently, there has been another very serious development which threatens the maintenance of the peace in Southwest Asia. Massive Soviet military forces have invaded the small, non-aligned, sovereign nation of Afghanistan, which had hitherto not been an occupied satellite of the Soviet Soviet Union. 50,000 heavily armed Soviet troops have crossed the border 
and are now dispersed throughout Afghanistan, attempting to conquer the fiercely independent Muslim people of that country. The Soviets claim falsely that they were invited into Afghanistan to help protect that country from some unnamed outside threat. But the president, who had been the leader of Afghanistan before the Soviet in invasion, was assassinated, along with several members of his family, after the Soviets gained control of the capital city of Kabul. Only several days later was a new puppet leader even brought into Afghanistan by the Soviets. This invasion is an extremely serious threat to peace because of a threat of further Soviet expansion into neighboring countries in Southwest Asia, and also because such an aggressive military policy is unsettling to other peoples throughout the world. This is a callous violation of international law and the United Nations Charter. It is a deliberate effort of a powerful atheistic government to subjugate an independent Islamic people. We must recognize the strategic importance of Afghanistan to stability and peace. A Soviet-occupied Afghanistan threatens both Iran and Pakistan and is a stepping stone to possible control over much of the world's oil supplies. The United States wants all nations in the region to be free and to be independent. If the Soviets are encouraged in this invasion by eventual success, and if they maintain their dominance over Afghanistan and then extend their control to adjacent countries, the stable, strategic, and peaceful balance of the entire world will be changed. This would threaten the security of all nations, including, of course, the United States, our allies, and our friends. And our friends. So apparently Russia needed Afghanistan and Iran, which were being threatened, for oil when, <laughs> when they really didn't need it. But, you know, since all our friends and we're just the good guys, we're just going to go help in Afghanistan. So we're going to train a bunch of people in clandestine arts. We're going to place them there. We're going to create the Mujahideen. We've talked about this before, a few years ago. And we're going to take them down, every single one of them, because that's what we will do, because we're the good guys. They're the bad guys. Here's another announcement of some new war. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd when the dictator of Iraq invaded a small and helpless neighbor. Kuwait, a member of the Arab League and a member of the United Nations, was crushed. Its people brutalized. Five months ago, Saddam Hussein started this cruel war against Kuwait. Tonight, the battle has been joined. This military action, taken in accord with United Nations resolutions, 
and with the consent of the United States Congress, follows months of constant and virtually endless diplomatic, diplomatic activity on the part of the United Nations, the United States, and many, many other countries. Arab leaders sought what became known as an Arab solution, only to conclude that Saddam Hussein was unwilling to leave Kuwait. Others traveled to Baghdad in a variety of efforts to restore peace and justice. Our Secretary of State, James Baker, held an historic meeting in Geneva, only to be totally rebuffed. This past weekend, in a last-ditch effort, the Secretary General of the United Nations went to the Middle East with peace in his heart, his second such mission, and he came back from Baghdad with no progress at all in getting Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait. Now, the 28 countries with forces in the Gulf area have exhausted all reasonable efforts to reach a peaceful resolution, have no choice but to drive Saddam from Kuwait by force. We will not fail. As I report to you, air attacks are underway against military targets in Iraq. We are determined to knock out Saddam Hussein's nuclear bomb potential. We will also destroy his chemical weapons facilities. Much of Saddam's artillery and tanks will be destroyed. Our operations are designed to best protect the lives of all the coalition forces by targeting Saddam's vast military arsenal. Initial reports from General Schwarzkopf are that our operations are proceeding according to plan. Our objectives are clear. Saddam Hussein's forces will leave Kuwait. The legitimate government of Kuwait will be restored to its rightful place. And Kuwait will once again be free. Iraq will eventually comply with all relevant United Nations resolutions. And then, when peace is restored, it is our hope that Iraq will live as a peaceful and cooperative member of the family of nations, thus enhancing the security and stability of the Gulf. Some may ask, why act now? Why not wait? The answer is clear. The world could wait no longer. Sanctions, though having some effect, showed no signs of accomplishing their objective. Sanctions were tried for well over five months, and we and our allies concluded that sanctions alone would not force Saddam from Kuwait. While the world waited, Saddam Hussein systematically raped, pillaged, and plundered a tiny nation, no threat to his own. He subjected the people of Kuwait to unspeakable atrocities, and among those maimed and murdered, innocent children. While the world waited, Saddam sought to add to the chemical weapons arsenal he now possesses an infinitely more dangerous weapon of mass destruction, a nuclear weapon. And while the world waited, while the world talked peace and withdrawal, Saddam Hussein dug in and moved massive forces into Kuwait. While the world waited, while Saddam stalled, more damage was being done to the fragile economies of the third world emerging democracies of Eastern Europe, to the entire world, including to our own economy. The United States 
together with the United Nations, exhausted every means at our disposal to bring this crisis to a peaceful end. However, Saddam clearly felt that by stalling and threatening and defying the United Nations, he could weaken the forces arrayed against him. While the world waited, Saddam Hussein met every overture of peace with open contempt. While the world prayed for peace, Saddam prepared for war. I had hoped that when the United States Congress, in historic debate, took its resolute action, Saddam would realize he could not prevail and would move out of Kuwait in accord with the United Nations resolutions. He did not do that. Instead, he remained intransigent, certain that time was on his side. Saddam was warned over and over again to comply with the will of the United Nations, leave Kuwait or be driven out. Saddam has arrogantly rejected all warnings. Instead, he tried to make this a dispute between Iraq and the United States of America. Well, he failed. Tonight, 28 nations, countries from five continents, Europe and Asia, Africa and the Arab League, have forces in the Gulf area standing shoulder to shoulder against Saddam Hussein. Wow. In the 90s, listening to this, you're like, whoa, we're going to go take out the bad guy. Right. We're going to go take out the bad guy. Look at all the countries working together to crush a third world nation that didn't want to help us exploit Kuwait. A couple days before the strike, Bush Jr. sold off his oil companies that were pumping oil. Made a lot of money. Saddam Hussein did not agree for the exploitation. Saddam Hussein was against the United States going in there and owning, saying, hey, I'm going to come in. We're going to pump your oil. We take half. You take half. And we build the infrastructure. That's the deal. And Saddam said no. Because once they take hold there, they create, a, they create their own places and they'll come in and take over. Kuwaitis were corrupt. They were a little bit, you know, on the fence with the rest of the Arab leagues. They didn't like it. And so, um, kind of like Ukraine, because Kuwait was the Middle East's Ukraine. Okay. This is where it happened. This is the Middle East's Ukraine was Kuwait. And so all the nations were pissed. The gravy train was not happening. And Saddam said no. Because not only that, you have to remember Middle East and Africa are rich in stuff that powerful people want. I'm going to have you sit and watch every single announcement of war. So that you can see that they do not uh, waver off the same song and dance. Convincing you that the rest of the world is on their side and therefore we are doing the right thing. Hmm? So it's okay because everyone else is doing it. 
It's okay because the people that are our friends are doing it. All of them were pissed. That was free oil. All of them were pissed. These countries had hoped the use of force could be avoided. Regrettably, we now believe that only force will make him leave. Prior to ordering our forces into battle, I instructed our military commanders to take every necessary step to prevail as quickly as possible and with the greatest degree of protection possible for American and allied servicemen and women. I've told the American people before that this will not be another Vietnam. And I repeat this here tonight. Our troops will have the best possible support in the entire world, and they will not be asked to fight with one hand tied behind their back. I'm hopeful that this fighting will not go on for long and that casualties will be held to an absolute minimum. This is an historic moment. We have in this past year made great progress in ending the long era of conflict and cold war. We have before us the opportunity to forge for ourselves and for future generations, a new world order, a world where the rule of law, not the law of the jungle, governs the conduct of nations. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order, an order in which a credible United Nations can use its peacekeeping role to fulfill the promise and vision of the UN's founders. We have no argument with the people of Iraq. Indeed, for the innocents caught in this conflict, I pray for their safety. Our goal is not the conquest of Iraq. It is the liberation of Kuwait. It is my hope that somehow the Iraqi people can, even now, convince their dictator that he must lay down his arms, leave Kuwait, and let Iraq itself rejoin the family of peace-loving nations. Thomas Paine wrote many years ago, these are the times that try men's souls. Those well-known words are so very true today. But even as planes of the multinational forces attack, attack Iraq, I prefer to think of peace, not war. I am convinced not only that we will prevail, but that out of the horror of combat will come the recognition that no nation can stand against a world united. No nation will be permitted to brutally assault its neighbor. No president can easily commit our sons and daughters to war. They are the nation's finest. Ours is an all-volunteer force, magnificently trained, highly motivated. The troops know why they're there. And listen to what they say, for they've said it better than any president or prime minister ever could. Listen to Hollywood Huddleston, Marine Lance Corporal. He says, let's free these people so we can go home and be free again. And he's right. 
the terrible crimes and tortures committed by Saddam's henchmen against the innocent people of Kuwait are an affront to mankind and a challenge to the freedom of all. Listen to one of our great officers out there, Marine Lieutenant General Walter Boomer. He said, there are things worth fighting for. A world in which brutality and lawlessness are allowed to go unchecked isn't the kind of world we're going to want to live in. Listen to Master Sergeant J.P. Kendall of the 82nd Airborne. We're here for more than just the price of a gallon of gas. What we're doing is going to chart the future of the world for the next hundred years. It's better to deal with this guy now than five years from now. And finally, we should all sit up and listen to Jackie Jones, an Army lieutenant, when she says, if we let him get away with this, who knows what's going to be next? I've called upon Hollywood and Walter and JP and Jackie and all their courageous comrades in arms to do what must be done. Tonight, America and the world are deeply, deeply grateful to them and to their families. And let me say to everyone listening or watching tonight, when the troops we've sent in finish their work, I'm determined to bring them home as soon as possible. Tonight, as our forces fight, they and their families are in our prayers. May God bless each and every one of them and the coalition forces at our side in the Gulf. And may he continue to bless our nation, the United States of America. Now with uh, fresh ears and fresh eyes, sounds kind of different, doesn't it? Sounds extremely different. To think all those soldiers that went there and lost their lives, that were hurt, unnecessarily of course, is horrific. It is horrific. They will never get their lives back for greed, for this new world order. And like Bush said, he contacted Hollywood to get everyone on board so we can all make this, you know, a thing. Kind of like how today, you know, Biden decided to have a conference with uh, TikTokers, right? (laughs) And give them the spiel on what's really going on in Ukraine and what kind of content they need to create. Because they need them to create the content. This is why he had a meeting with them. Hollywood's not cutting it. No one trusts Hollywood anymore. Hmm? No one listens to their music. They like these Tom McDonald's and these jelly rolls and Caitlin Curtis's and this is rubbish. We need to get with the kids. We need to tell the children what to think. That way they can tell the parents what they're learning in school and what's on TikTok, of course. Got to get with Hollywood. Well, here's another president with another war for you. You know, a war you thought started then 
actually it started eight years earlier as you just saw. Let's check this out. Good evening. Earlier today, I ordered America's armed forces to strike military and security targets in Iraq. They are joined by British forces. Their mission is to attack Iraq's nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons programs and its military capacity to threaten its neighbors. Their purpose is to protect the national interests of the United States and indeed the interests of people throughout the Middle East and around the world. Saddam Hussein must not be allowed to threaten his neighbors or the world with nuclear arms, poison gas, or biological weapons. I want to explain why I have decided, with the unanimous recommendation of my national security team, to use force in Iraq, why we have acted now, and what we aim to accomplish. Six weeks ago, Saddam Hussein announced that he would no longer cooperate with the United Nations weapons inspectors, called UNSCOM. They're highly professional experts from dozens of countries. Their job is to oversee the elimination of Iraq's capability to retain, create, and use weapons of mass destruction, and to verify that Iraq does not attempt to rebuild that capability. The inspectors undertook this mission first seven and a half years ago, at the end of the Gulf War, when Iraq agreed to declare and destroy its arsenal as a condition of the ceasefire. The international community had good reason to set this requirement. Other countries possess weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missiles. With Saddam, there's one big difference. He has used them, not once, but repeatedly, unleashing chemical weapons against Iranian troops during a decade-long war, not only against soldiers, but against civilians, firing Scud missiles at the citizens of Israel, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Iran, not only against a foreign enemy, but even against his own people gassing Kurdish civilians in northern Iraq. The international community had little doubt then, and I have no doubt today, that left unchecked, Saddam Hussein will use these terrible weapons again. The United States has patiently worked to preserve UNSCOM as Iraq has sought to avoid its obligation to cooperate with the inspectors. On occasion, we've had to threaten military force, and Saddam has backed down. Faced with Saddam's latest act of defiance in late October, we built intensive diplomatic pressure on Iraq, backed by overwhelming military force in the region. The UN Security Council voted 15 to 0 to condemn Saddam's actions and to demand that he immediately come into compliance. Eight Arab nations, Egypt, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, and Oman, warned that Iraq alone would bear responsibility for the consequences of defying the UN. When Saddam still failed to comply, we prepared to act militarily. It was only then, at the last possible moment, that Iraq backed down. It pledged to the UN that it had made, and I quote, a clear and unconditional decision to resume cooperation with the weapons inspectors. I decided then to call off the attack with our airplanes already in the air because Saddam had given in to our demands. I concluded then that the right thing to do was to use restraint and give Saddam one last chance to prove his willingness to cooperate. I made it very clear at that time what unconditional cooperation meant based on existing UN resolutions and Iraq's own commitments. 
And along with Prime Minister Blair of Great Britain, I made it equally clear that if Saddam failed to cooperate fully, we would be prepared to act without delay, diplomacy, or warning. Now, over the past three weeks, the UN weapons inspectors have carried out their plan for testing Iraq's cooperation. The testing period ended this weekend, and last night, UNSCOM's chairman, Richard Butler, reported the results to UN Secretary General Anand. The conclusions are stark, sobering, and profoundly disturbing. In four out of the five categories set forth, Iraq has failed to cooperate. Indeed, it actually has placed new restrictions on the inspectors. Here are some of the particulars. Iraq repeatedly blocked UNSCOM from inspecting suspect sites. For example, it shut off access to the headquarters of its ruling party and said it will deny access to the party's other offices, even though UN resolutions make no exception for them and UNSCOM has inspected them in the past. Iraq repeatedly restricted UNSCOM's ability to obtain necessary evidence. For example, Iraq obstructed UNSCOM's effort to photograph bombs related to its chemical weapons program. It tried to stop an UNSCOM biological weapons team from videotaping a site and photocopying documents and prevented Iraqi personnel from answering UNSCOM's questions. Prior to the inspection of another site, Iraq actually emptied out the building, removing not just documents, but even the furniture and the equipment. Iraq has failed to turn over virtually all the documents requested by the inspectors. Indeed, we know that Iraq ordered the destruction of weapons-related documents in anticipation of an UNSCOM inspection. So Iraq has abused its final chance. As the UNSCOM report concludes, and again I quote, Iraq's conduct ensured that no progress was able to be made in the fields of disarmament. In light of this experience, and in the absence of full cooperation by Iraq, it must regrettably be recorded again that the Commission is not able to conduct the work mandated to it by the Security Council with respect to Iraq's prohibited weapons program. In short, the inspectors are saying that even if they could stay in Iraq, their work would be a sham. Saddam's deception has defeated their effectiveness. Instead of the inspectors disarming Saddam, Saddam has disarmed the inspectors. This situation presents a clear and present danger to the stability of the Persian Gulf and the safety of people everywhere. The international community gave Saddam one last chance to resume cooperation with the weapons inspectors. Saddam has failed to seize the chance. And so we had to act and act now. Let me explain why. First, without a strong inspection system, Iraq would be free to retain and begin to rebuild its chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons programs in months, not years. Second, if Saddam can cripple the weapons inspection system and get away with it, he would conclude that the international community, led by the United States, has simply lost its will. He will surmise that he has free reign to rebuild his arsenal of destruction. And someday, make no mistake, he will use it again as he has in the past. Third, in halting our airstrikes in November, I gave Saddam a chance, not a license. If we turn our backs on his defiance, the credibility of U.S. power as a check against Saddam will be destroyed. 
we will not only have allowed Saddam to shatter the inspection system that controls his weapons of mass destruction program, we also will have fatally undercut the fear of force that stopped Saddam from acting to gain domination in the region. That is why, on the unanimous recommendation of my national security team, including the Vice President, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of State, and the National Security Advisor, I have ordered a strong, sustained series of airstrikes against Iraq. They are designed to degrade Saddam's capacity to develop and deliver weapons of mass destruction and to degrade his ability to threaten his neighbors. At the same time, we are delivering a powerful message to Saddam. If you act recklessly, you will pay a heavy price. We acted today because in the judgment of my military advisors, a swift response would provide the most surprise and the least opportunity for Saddam to prepare. If we had delayed for even a matter of days from Chairman Butler's report, we would have given Saddam more time to disperse his forces and protect his weapons. Also, the Muslim holy month of Ramadan begins this weekend. For us to initiate military action during Ramadan would be profoundly offensive to the Muslim world and therefore would damage our relations with Arab countries and the progress we have made in the Middle East. That is something we wanted very much to avoid without giving Iraq a month's head start to prepare for potential action against it. Finally, our allies, including Prime Minister Tony Blair of Great Britain, concurred that now is the time to strike. I hope Saddam will come into cooperation with the inspection system now and comply with the relevant UN Security Council resolutions. But we have to be prepared that he will not. And we must deal with the very real danger he poses. So we will pursue a long-term strategy to contain Iraq and its weapons of mass destruction and work toward the day when Iraq has a government worthy of its people. First, we must be prepared to use force again if Saddam takes threatening actions, such as trying to reconstitute his weapons of mass destruction or their delivery systems, threatening his neighbors, challenging, aircraft, challenging allied aircraft over Iraq, or moving against his own Kurdish citizens. The credible threat to use force, and when necessary, the actual use of force, is the surest way to contain Saddam's weapons of mass destruction program, curtail his aggression, and prevent another Gulf War. Second, so long as Iraq remains out of compliance, we will work with the international community to maintain and enforce economic sanctions. Sanctions have cost Saddam more than $120 billion, resources that would have been used to rebuild his military. The sanction system allows Iraq to sell oil for food, for medicine, for other humanitarian supplies for the Iraqi people. We have no quarrel with them. But without the sanctions, we would see the oil for food program become oil for tanks, resulting in a greater threat to Iraq's neighbors and less food for its people. The hard fact is that so long as Saddam remains in power, he threatens the well-being of his people, the peace of his region, the security of the world. The best way to end that threat, once and for all, is with a new Iraqi government, a government ready to live in peace with its neighbors, a government that respects the rights of its people. Bringing change in Baghdad will take time and effort. We will strengthen our engagement with the full range of Iraqi opposition forces and work with them effectively and prudently. The decision to use force is never cost-free. Whenever American forces are placed in harm's way, we risk the loss of life. 
And while our strikes are focused on Iraq's military capabilities, there will be unintended Iraqi casualties. Indeed, in the past, Saddam has intentionally placed Iraqi civilians in harm's way in a cynical bid to sway international opinion. We must be prepared for these realities. At the same time, Saddam should have absolutely no doubt. If he lashes out at his neighbors, we will respond forcefully. Heavy as they are, the costs of action must be weighed against the price of inaction. If Saddam defies the world and we fail to respond, we will face a far graver threat in the future. Saddam will strike again at his neighbors. He will make war on his own people. And mark my words, he will develop weapons of mass destruction. He will deploy them and he will use them. Because we're acting today, it is less likely that we will face these dangers in the future. Let me close by addressing one other issue. Saddam Hussein and the other enemies of peace may have thought that the serious debate currently before the House of Representatives would distract Americans or weaken our resolve to face him down. But once more, the United States has proven that although we are never eager to use force, when we must act in America's vital interests, we will do so. In the century we're leaving, America has often made the difference between chaos and community, fear and hope. Now in a new century, we'll have a remarkable opportunity to shape a future more peaceful than the past. But only if we stand strong against the enemies of peace. Tonight, the United States is doing just that. May God bless and protect the brave men and women who are carrying out this vital mission and their families. And may God bless America. See, with all those rape allegations coming in, they just needed war. And you know, wars have casualties. Wars have casualties. And when that didn't work, you know, that one war didn't work. It's like, let's do another one because they've impeached me and (laughs) I'm going to get impeached. So let's let's do another war. Let's get in there. I mean, that always seems to work, right? War to cover up election fraud. War to cover up what his kid did. My fellow Americans. Today, our armed forces joined our NATO allies in airstrikes against Serbian forces responsible for the brutality in Kosovo. We have acted with resolve for several reasons. We act to protect thousands of innocent people in Kosovo from a mounting military offensive. We act to prevent a wider war, to defuse a powder keg at the heart of Europe that has exploded twice before in this century with catastrophic results. And we act to stand united with our allies for peace. By acting now, we are upholding our values, protecting our interests, and advancing the cause of peace. Tonight, I want to speak with you about the tragedy in Kosovo and why it matters to America that we work with our allies to end it. First, let me explain what it is we are responding to. Kosovo is a province of Serbia in the middle of southeastern Europe about 160 miles east of Italy. That's less than the distance between Washington and New York, and only about 70 miles north of Greece. Its people are mostly ethnic Albanian and mostly Muslim. 
1989, Serbia's leader, Slobodan Milosevic, the same leader who started the wars in Bosnia and Croatia and moved against Slovenia in the last decade, stripped Kosovo of the constitutional autonomy its people enjoyed, thus denying them their right to speak their language, run their schools, shape their daily lives. For years, Kosovars struggled peacefully to get their rights back. When President Milosevic sent his troops and police to crush them, the struggle grew violent. Last fall, our diplomacy, backed by the threat of force from our NATO alliance, stopped the fighting for a while and rescued tens of thousands of people from freezing and starvation in the hills where they had fled to save their lives. And last month, with our allies and Russia, we proposed a peace agreement to end the fighting for good. The Kosovar leaders signed that agreement last week. Even though it does not give them all they want, even though their people were still being savaged, they saw that a just peace is better than a long and unwinnable war. The Serbian leaders, on the other hand, refused even to discuss key elements of the peace agreement. As the Kosovars were saying yes to peace, Serbia stationed 40,000 troops in and around Kosovo in preparation for a major offensive and in clear violation mm-hmm, mm-hmm, of the commitments. Mm-hmm. That- this is why Joe Biden and a bunch of other Democrats got highways named after them in Serbia and Kosovo. But, you know, I digress. Because before we get into all the other wars, and that was the last war he pulled, trying to distract, you'll see why you're getting distracted now. It's a tactic. But while we take this break, I want you to see who the real people are behind these things. The people that really are the ones that risk their lives while they enrich themselves and try to cover up scandals. Is the real face of war. The real face. Kleenex warning. I warn you. You need a Kleenex during this intermission.
Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. Other close friends, including Canada, Australia, Germany, and France have pledged forces as the operation unfolds. More than 40 countries in the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and across Asia have granted air transit or landing rights. Many more have shared intelligence. We are supported by the collective will of the world. More than two weeks ago, I gave Taliban leaders a series of clear and specific demands. Close terrorist training camps, hand over leaders of the Al-Qaeda network, and return all foreign nationals, including American citizens, unjustly detained in your country. None of these demands were met. And now, the Taliban will pay a price. By destroying camps and disrupting communications, we will make it more difficult for the terror network to train new recruits and coordinate their evil plans. Initially, the terrorists may burrow deeper into caves and other entrenched hiding places. Our military action is also designed to clear the way for sustained, comprehensive, and relentless operations to drive them out and bring them to justice. At the same time, the oppressed people of Afghanistan will know the generosity of America and our allies. As we strike military targets, we will also drop food, medicine, and supplies to the starving and suffering men and women and children of Afghanistan. The United States of America is a friend to the Afghan people. And we are the friends of almost a billion worldwide who practice the Islamic faith. The United States States of America is an enemy. So in all those speeches so far, there's one common theme. Our soldiers go and fight because they are told to. And ultimately it is us, the people, and those that deem it to be the ultimate sacrifice. To go and fight these wars to enrich themselves. And one thing you hear them repeat over and over and over again. Oh, while we're at war, we want to help the other people. We want to make sure they're not hungry and hurt. We will be dropping supplies. This is a common theme from all of them. Yes, yes, we think that these innocent people shouldn't get hurt. We pray for them. Now think of this. We're at war right now, apparently, right? We're helping Ukraine fight big, bad Russia, right? But what is the community and the leader of this supposed free nation said? Oh, cut them off. We're not giving them food. We're not giving them water. They're not allowed to have the internet. They're banned from the internet. They're not allowed to talk. They're not allowed to be seen or heard. There's a difference in what's going on right now. So as you watch all these wars that seem to be the same one for a very long time, I want you to think what's different this time. What's different this time? Of those who aid terrorists and of the barbaric criminals who profane a great religion by committing murder in its name. 
This military action is a part of our campaign against terrorism, another front in a war that has already been joined through diplomacy, intelligence, the freezing of financial assets, and the arrests of known terrorists by law enforcement agents in 38 countries. Given the nature and reach of our enemies, we will win this conflict by the patient accumulation of successes, by meeting a series of challenges with determination and will and purpose. Today we focus on Afghanistan, but the battle is broader. Every nation has a choice to make. In this conflict, there is no neutral ground. If any government sponsors the outlaws and killers of innocence, they have become outlaws and murderers themselves, and they will take that lonely path at their own peril. I'm speaking to you today from the treaty room of the White House, a place where American presidents have worked for peace. We're a peaceful nation. Yet as we have learned so suddenly and so tragically, there can be no peace in a world of sudden terror. In the face of today's new threat, the only way to pursue peace is to pursue those who threaten it. We did not ask for this mission, but we will fulfill it. The name of today's military operation is Enduring Freedom. We defend not only our precious freedoms, but also the freedom of people everywhere to live and raise their children free from fear. I know many Americans feel fear today, and our government is taking strong precautions. All law enforcement and intelligence agencies are working aggressively around America, around the world, and around the clock. At my request, many governors have activated the National Guard to strengthen airport security. We have called up reserves to reinforce our military capability and strengthen the protection of our homeland. In the months ahead, our patience will be one of our strengths. Patience with the long waits that will result from tighter security. Patience in understanding that it will take time to achieve our goal. That it will take time to achieve our goals. Patience in all the sacrifices that may come. Today, those sacrifices are being made by members of our armed forces who now defend us so far from home and by their proud and worried families. A commander-in-chief sends America's sons and daughters into a battle in a foreign land only after the greatest care and a lot of prayer. We ask a lot of those who wear our uniform. We ask them to leave their loved ones, to travel great distances, to risk injury, even to be prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice of their lives. They are dedicated. They are honorable. They represent the best of our country, and we are grateful. To all the men and women in our military, every sailor, every soldier, every airman, every Coast Guardsman, every Marine, I say this, your mission is defined. Your objectives are clear. Your goal is just. You have my full confidence, and you will have every tool you need to carry out your duty. I recently received a touching letter that says a lot about the state of America in these difficult times. A letter from a fourth grade girl with a father in the military. As much as I don't want my dad to fight, she wrote, I'm willing to give him to you. This is a precious gift, the greatest she could give. This young girl knows what America is all about. Since September 11, an entire generation of young Americans has gained new understanding of the value of freedom and its cost in duty and in sacrifice. The battle is now joined on many fronts.
we will not waver, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Peace and freedom will prevail. Thank you. May God continue to bless America. You're seeing it with new eyes now, and it looks very different, doesn't it? Wait, there's more. Aside from that, we had the Iraq War, if you remember correctly. Here's the start, apparently, of the Iraq War, because it didn't happen before. So interesting how things look so different. In Iraq, Operation Iraqi Freedom. Up Up next next is five-minute address from the Oval Office. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. On my orders, coalition forces have begun striking selected targets of military importance to undermine Saddam Hussein's ability to wage war. These are opening stages of what will be a broad and concerted campaign. More than 35 countries are giving crucial support, from the use of naval and air bases, to help with intelligence and logistics, to the deployment of combat units. Every nation in this coalition has chosen to bear the duty and share the honor of serving in our common defense. To all the men and women of the United States Armed Forces now in the Middle East, the peace of a troubled world and the hopes of an oppressed people now depend on you. That trust is well placed. The enemies you confront will come to know your skill and bravery. The people you liberate will witness the honorable and decent spirit of the American military. In this conflict, America faces an enemy who has no regard for conventions of war or rules of morality. Saddam Hussein has placed Iraqi troops and equipment in civilian areas, attempting to use innocent men, women, and children as shields for his own military, a final atrocity against his people. I want Americans and all the world to know that coalition forces will make every effort to spare innocent civilians from harm. A campaign on the harsh terrain of a nation as large as California could be longer and more difficult than some predict. And helping Iraqis achieve a united, stable, and free country will require our sustained commitment. We come to Iraq with respect for its citizens, for their great civilization, and for the religious faiths they practice. We have no ambition in Iraq except to remove a threat and restore control of that country to its own people. I know that the families of our military are praying that all those who serve will return safely and soon. Millions of Americans are praying with you for the safety of your loved ones and for the protection of the innocent. For your sacrifice, you have the gratitude and respect of the American people. And you can know that our forces will be coming home as soon as their work is done. Our nation enters this conflict reluctantly, yet our purpose is sure. The people of the United States and our friends and allies will not live at the mercy of an outlaw regime that threatens the peace with weapons of mass murder. We will meet that threat now with our Army, Air Force, Navy, Coast Guard, and Marines so that we do not have to meet it later with armies of firefighters, 
and police and doctors on the streets of our cities. Now that I can't, he invoked 9-11. I, I just can't. I can't. Listen, I want you to follow, follow, follow the other wars now that are coming that I'm going to show you. And you have to see the commonalities in their speeches and what they say. But you have to remember, you must remember that those that are victim, because I see so many of you saying, this is why the world hates us. This is why this. Did you know? Would they blame you? Like they said, they used to be more open about it. We called Hollywood. We're getting everyone on board. Everyone's with us. This is Barack Hussein Obama claiming that the war in Iraq is over. This is take one. We cannot rid Iraq of every single individual who opposes America or sympathizes with our adversaries. We cannot police Iraq's streets indefinitely until they are completely safe, nor can we stay until Iraq's union is perfect. We cannot sustain indefinitely a commitment that has put a strain on our military and will cost the American people nearly a trillion dollars. America's men and women in uniform, so many of you, have fought block by block, province by province, year after year, to give the Iraqis this chance to choose a better future. Now we must ask the Iraqi people to seize it. The first part of this strategy is therefore the responsible removal of our combat brigades from Iraq. As a candidate for president, I made clear my support for a timeline of 16 months to carry out this drawdown, while pledging to consult closely with our military commanders upon taking office to ensure that we preserve the gains we've made and to protect our troops. These consultations are now complete. And I've chosen a timeline that will remove our combat brigades over the next 18 months. So let me say this as plainly as I can. By August 31st, 2010, our combat mission in Iraq will end. As we... Did it, though? Did it, though? See, suddenly, from Clinton to him, it went to cost, about the amount of money it's going to cost Americans and how we're going to end this. And this was my promise to you, so I'm going to stop it. Hmm. That was for Iraq. Well, here's what he said. Uh, so that was uh, plus six, seven months later. Where we begin tonight, he said, quote, we, we have, have met, met our responsibilities. Now it's time to turn the page. The president declared an end to combat operations. He spoke of the sacrifices of U.S. troops and their families, and he looked ahead at home and abroad. He was somber, almost still behind the desk in the Oval Office, where he noted it all began. From this desk, seven and a half years ago, President Bush announced the beginning of military operations in Iraq. 
That night was filled with the shock and awe of American military might. But history has its own deep secrets. And what unfolded was beyond anyone's imagining. And so all these years later, President Obama declared this historic milestone. Tonight, I am announcing that the American combat mission in Iraq has ended. Operation Iraqi Freedom is over. And the Iraqi people now have lead responsibility for the security of their country. He tried to sum up what the war in Iraq has meant, what has been accomplished by the more than one and a half million Americans who have served there. They defeated a regime that had terrorized its people. Together with Iraqis and coalition partners who made huge sacrifices of their own, our troops fought block by block to help Iraq seize the chance for a better future. But Iraq is a long way from that future, and in the screams of sirens after bombings, the poverty and dysfunction, the political bickering, it remains doubtful, a reality the president acknowledged. Of course, violence will not end with our combat mission. Extremists will continue to set off bombs, attack Iraqi civilians, and try to spark sectarian strife. But ultimately, these terrorists will fail to achieve their goals. There are scars at home, too. The Iraq war divided the country, and those divisions were deep and bitter. I'm mindful that the Iraq war has been a contentious issue at home. Here, too, it's time to turn the page. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed. President Obama's predecessor, who launched the war and rejoiced so theatrically in the success of its early stages, saw his presidency ultimately crippled by it. Here, too, though, President Obama sought to make a gesture of reconciliation. This afternoon, I spoke to former President George W. Bush. It's well known that he and I disagreed about the war from its outset. Yet no one can doubt President Bush's support for our troops or his love of country and commitment to our security. The greatness of our democracy is grounded in our ability to move beyond our differences and to learn from our experience as we confront the many challenges ahead. But for most, this moment is one for reflection. Defense Secretary Robert Gates was overcome with emotion at the thought of what has been given and lost in this war. The courage of these men and women their determination, their sacrifice. And when it was about the soldiers, supposedly, right? Well, here's another thing. In 2011, right? 2011, and it was 2021, 10 years later, Barack Hussein Obama announced the end of the beginning of the end of the Afghani war. Yes, he did. This is how you can see the scripts, all the same, again and again and again. It's the beginning of the end for America's war in Afghanistan. 10,000 soldiers home before Christmas, 23,000 by next summer. The president's plan for a troop drawdown will start in July. After this initial reduction, our troops will continue coming home at a steady pace as Afghan security forces move into the lead. Our mission will change from combat to support. By 2014, this process of transition will be complete. At the start of his term, Obama doubled American forces in Afghanistan, then sent in a surge of 33,000 soldiers. The objective? 
reverse the Taliban's momentum, and disrupt al-Qaeda. On the ground, gains are real, but fragile. The Taliban remains strong, and Afghan forces are far from ready to take over security duties. But the president decided for a rapid withdrawal, against the advice of his generals. Obama argued that escalations against the Taliban and al-Qaeda would allow a drawdown from a position of strength. Al-Qaeda is under more pressure than at any time since 9-11. Together with the Pakistanis, we have taken out more than half of al-Qaeda's leadership. Obama's Afghan mission is unpopular, much like the Iraq conflict under George Bush. Recent polls show more than half of Americans want U.S. troops home as soon as possible. They wince at the cost, $120 billion per year. That's money many in the U.S. would prefer when to fight unemployment at home. Unemployment at home. And they winced. That was Afghanistan in 2011 when he made that announcement. It was in 2021 when Biden decided to just get out and have people drop from airplanes and leave things. Pay attention to the difference on these announcements. It is very important you pay attention not only to the words, but to what they are doing and how they are doing it. And here's the last announcement of war, again from Barack Hussein Obama. It's quite fascinating when you're seeing it with fresh eyes. It's actually quite telling. Because then you can tell the difference with what's going on now to realize what a pure distraction it is. My fellow Americans, tonight I want to talk to you about Syria, why it matters, and where we go from here. Over the past two years, what began as a series of peaceful protests against the repressive regime of Bashar al-Assad has turned into a brutal civil war. Over 100,000 people have been killed. Millions have fled the country. In that time, America has worked with allies to provide humanitarian support, to help the moderate opposition, and to shape a political settlement. But I have resisted calls for military action because we cannot resolve someone else's civil war through force, particularly after a decade of war in Iraq and Afghanistan. The situation profoundly changed, though, on August 21st, when Assad's government gassed to death over a thousand people, including hundreds of children. The images from this massacre are sickening. Men, women, children lying in rows killed by poison gas, Others foaming at the mouth, gasping for breath. A father clutching his dead children, imploring them to get up and walk. On that terrible night, the world saw in gruesome detail the terrible nature of chemical weapons and why the overwhelming majority of humanity has declared them off limits, a crime against humanity and a violation of the laws of war. This was not always the case. In World War I, American GIs were among the many thousands killed by deadly gas in the trenches of Europe. In World War II, the Nazis used gas to inflict the horror of the Holocaust. Because these weapons can kill on a mass scale, with no distinction between soldier and infant, the civilized world has spent a century working to ban them. And in 1997, the United States Senate overwhelmingly approved an international agreement prohibiting the use of chemical weapons, now joined by 189 governments that represent 
98% of humanity. On August 21st, these basic rules were violated, along with our sense of common humanity. No one disputes that chemical weapons were used in Syria. The world saw thousands of videos, cell phone pictures, and social media accounts from the attack. And humanitarian organizations told stories of hospitals packed with people who had symptoms of poison gas. Moreover, we know the Assad regime was responsible. In the days leading up to August 21st, we know that Assad's chemical weapons personnel prepared for an attack near an area where they mix sarin gas. They distributed gas masks to their troops. Then they fired rockets from a regime-controlled area into 11 neighborhoods that the regime has been trying to wipe clear of opposition forces. Shortly after those rockets landed, the gas spread, and hospitals filled with the dying and the wounded. We know senior figures in Assad's military machine reviewed the results of the attack, and the regime increased their shelling of the same neighborhoods in the days that followed. We've also studied samples of blood and hair from people at the site that tested positive for sarin. When dictators commit atrocities, they depend upon the world to look the other way until those horrifying pictures fade from memory. But these things happened. The facts cannot be denied. The question now is what the United States of America and the international community is prepared to do about it. Because what happened to those people, to those children, is not only a violation of international law, it's also a danger to our security. Let me explain why. If we fail to act, the Assad regime will see no reason to stop using chemical weapons. As the ban against these weapons erodes, other tyrants will have no reason to think twice about acquiring poison gas and using them. Over time, our troops would again face the prospect of chemical warfare on the battlefield. And it could be easier for terrorist organizations to obtain these weapons and to use them to attack civilians. If fighting spills beyond Syria's borders, these weapons could threaten allies like Turkey, Jordan, and Israel. And a failure to stand against the use of chemical weapons would weaken prohibitions against other weapons of mass destruction and embolden Assad's ally, Iran, which must decide whether to ignore international law by building a nuclear weapon or to take a more peaceful path. This is not a world we should accept. This is what's at stake. And that is why, after careful deliberation, I determined that it is in the national security interests of the United States to respond to the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons through a targeted military strike. The purpose of this strike would be to deter Assad from using chemical weapons, to degrade his regime's ability to use them, and to make clear to the world that we will not tolerate their use. That's my judgment as Commander-in-Chief. But I'm also the President of the world's oldest constitutional democracy. So even though I possess the authority to order military strikes, I believed it was right, in the absence of a direct or imminent threat to our security, to take this debate to Congress. I believe our democracy is stronger when the President acts with the support of Congress. And I believe that America acts more effectively abroad when we stand together. This is especially true after a decade that put more and more war-making power in the hands of the President and more and more burdens on the shoulders of our troops 
while sidelining the people's representatives from the critical decisions about when we use force. Now, I know that after the terrible toll of Iraq and Afghanistan, the idea of any military action, no matter how limited, is not going to be popular. After all, I've spent four and a half years working to end wars, not to start them. Our troops are out of Iraq. Our troops are coming home from Afghanistan. And I know Americans want all of us in Washington, especially me, to concentrate on the task of building our nation here at home, putting people back to work, educating our kids, growing our middle class. It's no wonder, then, that you're asking hard questions. So let me answer some of the most important questions that I've heard from members of Congress and that I've read in letters that you've sent to me. First, many of you have asked, won't this put us on a slippery slope to another war? One man wrote to me that we are still recovering from our involvement in Iraq. A veteran put it more bluntly. This nation is sick and tired of war. My answer is simple. I will not put American boots on the ground in Syria. I will not pursue an open-ended action like Iraq or Afghanistan. I will not pursue a prolonged air campaign like Libya or Kosovo. This would be a targeted strike to achieve a clear objective, deterring the use of chemical weapons and degrading Assad's capabilities. Others have asked whether it's worth acting if we don't take out Assad. As some members of Congress have said, there's no point in simply doing a pinprick strike in Syria. Let me make something clear. The United States military doesn't do pinpricks. Even a limited strike will send a message to Assad that no other nation can deliver. I don't think we should remove another dictator with force. We learned from Iraq that doing so makes us responsible for all that comes next. But a targeted strike can make Assad or any other dictator think twice before using chemical weapons. Other questions involve the dangers of retaliation. We don't dismiss any threats. But the Assad regime does not have the ability to seriously threaten our military. Any other, any other retaliation they might seek is in line with threats that we face every day. Neither Assad nor his allies have any interest in escalation that would lead to his demise. And our ally Israel can defend itself with overwhelming force, as well as the unshakable support of the United States of America. Many of you have asked a broader question. Why should we get involved at all in a place that's so complicated and where, as one person wrote to me, those who come after Assad may be enemies of human rights? It's true that some of Assad's opponents are extremists, but al-Qaeda will only draw strength in a more chaotic Syria if people there see the world doing nothing to prevent innocent civilians from being gassed to death. The majority of the Syrian people and the Syrian opposition we work with just want to live in peace, with dignity and freedom. And the day after any military action, we would redouble our efforts to achieve a political solution that strengthens those who reject the forces of tyranny and extremism. Finally, many of you have asked, why not leave this to other countries or seek solutions short of force? As several people wrote to me, we should not be the world's policemen. I agree. And I have a deeply held preference for peaceful solutions. Over the last two years, my administration has tried diplomacy and sanctions, warnings and negotiations. But chemical weapons were still used by the Assad regime. However, 
Over the last few days, we've seen some encouraging signs, in part because of the credible threat of U.S. military action, as well as constructive talks that I had with President Putin. The Russian government has indicated a willingness to join with the international community in pushing Assad to give up his chemical weapons. The Assad regime has now admitted that it has these weapons, and even said they joined the Chemical Weapons Convention, which prohibits their use. It's too early to tell whether this offer will succeed, and any agreement must verify that the Assad regime keeps its commitments. But this initiative has the potential to remove the threat of chemical weapons without the use of force, particularly because Russia is one of Assad's strongest allies. I have therefore asked the leaders of Congress to postpone a vote to authorize the use of force while we pursue this diplomatic path. I'm sending Secretary of State John Kerry to meet his Russian counterpart on Thursday, and I will continue my own discussions with President Putin. I've spoken to the leaders of two of our closest allies, France and the United Kingdom, and we will work together in consultation with Russia and China to put forward a resolution at the UN Security Council requiring Assad to give up his chemical weapons and to ultimately destroy them under international control. He didn't do any of that. President Trump didn't start any wars. President Trump had every right to start a war. All they did was declare war when they needed popularity or when they needed to show the world who they are. Now, there was this uh, timepiece, a two-minute clip. <sighs> titled, See How the U.S. Declares War. Take a look and tell me what you see. The unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan, a state of war, has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. That was the last time the U.S. officially declared war on another country. Japan's attack at Pearl Harbor was the catalyst that prompted FDR to propel America into World War II. But the U.S. doesn't go to war like that anymore. Korea, Vietnam, the Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, Iraq. Technically, those were not wars. Those conflicts are considered extended military engagements. President Obama has been selective about the way he uses the word war, including in his latest declaration of a stepped-up effort to defeat the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. What's needed now is a targeted, relentless counterterrorism campaign against ISIL that combines American air power, contributions from allies and partners, and more support to forces that are fighting these terrorists on the ground. Call it whatever you want. Targeted action, a systematic campaign, or a sustained counterterrorism strategy. But don't call it war. Uh, if somebody wants to think about it as being a war with ISIL, they can do so. But the fact is, it's a major counterterrorism operation that will have many different moving parts. The Obama administration has made a concerted effort to avoid the heavy-handed language of the Bush administration, such as the war on terror or the axis of evil. The United States of America will not permit the world's most dangerous regimes to threaten us with the world's most destructive weapons. When President Obama was elected in 2008, more than 60% of the country believed the Iraq war, which again, technically not a war, wasn't worth fighting. 
part of what got Obama to the White House was a campaign pledge to end that conflict. And he fulfilled that promise when he pulled combat troops out of the country in 2011. Going back into Iraq could be seen by some as an extension of that unpopular war, all of which is why the rhetoric will mean a lot less than what the president actually sends the military to go do. Fascinating. In other words, words matter. But what is it good for? What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Except if you have rape charges coming at you, impeachments coming at you, right? But we didn't see President Trump use it. You see, those are supposedly small wars, right? Are they, though? Are they small wars? Uh, You know, the more we see the past with today's eyes, the more it makes sense. The word of war has evolved (laughs) and is no longer called war. But unbeknownst to you, you have been fighting a war. You were selected, or maybe you stepped up to actually fight for your nation. And none of you being found now on Rumble or Telegram actually retreated from any battlefield. When Twitter got rid of you, when Facebook did whatever, you moved. You used other platforms as a method to centralize the command to fight the war that no one's really calling a war. You've been sharing your memes, your opinions from your car, from your house, from your basement, from your garage. You've been taking information and sharing it. Your first mission was to reject what they were shoving down your throat and posting facts, information, and everything that refuted what was being said. Your second mission was to support those that are fighting for you, liking, sharing, elevating. That was your second mission. The people with the big mouths must be elevated so we can all be heard because they're our mouth. And your third one was to help get your woke friends to actually become awake. You would share information that you had, your memes, your funny pictures, your stickers. And then when they would come at you with information that they saw on CNN, Fox, wherever, you would come back to them and you would rebuttal with, okay, well then answer me this. Your fourth mission was to learn How to obfuscate your persona online. What I call digital camouflage. When one account was terminated, you had another one waiting. Many of you have that going on, right? And now, mission number five. You're doing it in your staterooms. You're identifying the weaknesses and the strengths of those around you. And then, you're all finding the strengths and the weaknesses of your targets within your states. And that is how you then coordinate 
your letters, your stickers, your memes, your writing within your community. You see, that's game theory. There were five missions that the people had to do, and you have done it. You are starting to understand what information warfare really is. And you're understanding that together we win. And while many tell you, welcome to the digital battlefield, bitches, you are the digital battlefield, right? You are that battlefield. You are the ones that are in command. You are out there. You are fighting. You just don't feel it. But everything you have done has made change. Every single thing you have done in this past year and what we've done together in the groups is incredible. And that's why today I shared to you that I didn't call my group, Tori says, right? Right. Tori is my name with my red face. I called it Tori says plus because I don't just say you say, right? I just, I just have a big mouth. I have no problem being a target whatsoever. We're all the same. You know, when people say, oh, you have fans. I don't have fans, dude. I have family. I have listeners, right? Because we're all one community. And that's where we're at. We're on that battlefield right now. And it's war. And hence why I said my, my Telegram page was already set up in 2019 when I first set it up. As Tori says, plus, because it's what Tori says, plus, because it's everybody. And you know, this is really it. You're going to call us racist. You're going to call us potential Timothy McVeigh's. Fuck you. War. Don't let anyone ever tell you, you can't make a difference. Don't let anyone ever tell you that, oh, we're just going to give up a little bit of these essential liberties just to get a little bit of temporary safety. (laughs) Because in the end, you're not going to have any of those. Not even one ounce of it. Not even one ounce of it. And, you know, throughout these past years, we've been investing in our own knowledge. Because you know what? When you invest in knowledge, boy, does that interest actually pay out. It pays out like no other. There's no better interest payment than that of one that has actually learned from the past. On that note... I want to wish you guys a fantastic evening, a fabulous weekend. I'm going to parade on Sunday. So those of you on Locals, I'll kind of give you a behind-the-scenes thing there. Um, God bless. See ya. Better than the sun, and how do we get him